0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show on Minnesota Public Radio. When the southern border between the U.S. and Mexico makes news, the journalism is often filled with the consequences of failed policies to address migration from south to north, or demagoguing politicians who are distorting the truth of what's really happening there. But fiction often tells the kind of nuanced truth that political journalism can miss. And that's what writer Misha Marin accomplishes in her new novel. It examines the misinformation and misperceptions that endure about the borderlands and beyond, even as it presents the mystery of a disappearance. Misha Marin is an assistant professor of creative writing at Duke University, and her new novel is titled Perpetual West, And she joins us from North Carolina. And Misha, welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I think you heard me use the word misperceptions in the introduction. Here's what I wonder about that. If most Americans are aware or care that much of the information that we get about the border feeds this really narrow understanding of what life is like there. Do we care that it's a distorted view, do you think?
1: I think that yes. I think um, if people have a chance to become aware of this distortion, then they do care. I think that um, the problem is often that this distortion is mistaken for reality. And the stories we often get through um, the media about the the border region and particularly where my novel is set in Ciudad Juarez are these kind of piecemeal stories. We hear about the femicides, we hear about uh, the cartel violence, but we hear about it as if they're these sort of disconnected places, Not, We aren't led to think about them uh, for what they really are, which is the consequences of a specific set of economic and geopolitical relations.
0: What, what would you, let's focus for a minute on the economic situation and, and yeah. the connection between what you've just mentioned. What's misunderstood about that, would you say?
1: Well, so it wasn't really until I myself moved down to that region. I was living in El Paso, Texas in 2004 and 2005 and was frequently traveling across the border uh, to see friends in Ciudad Juarez. It wasn't until that point that I realized that you really can't talk about well, the border region in general, but specifically Ciudad Juarez and El Paso, Texas, without talking about NAFTA. And NAFTA is really just one piece, but I think it's very, very crucial to understanding that area. So when NAFTA went through, it was negotiated with George H.W. Bush and then went into effect under Bill Clinton. A principal condition for uh, the U.S. kind of entering into this agreement with Mexico and, and going forward with this was a redoing or undoing of certain agrarian reforms that came into place after the revolution in mexico that had provided for ejidos communal lands those lands were mostly dismantled and divided up into private land there were also tariffs and quotas on agricultural imports that were removed and subsidies that had supported small-scale farmers All of this combined made it much much harder for small farmers in Mexico. The price of corn dropped by around fifty percent after NAFTA agreement, and within six years following the implementation of that agreement, two million farmers had abandoned their land. And you know, you might be thinking, "Well, okay, so Sierra Juarez is is a city. Why are we talking so much about agriculture?" But um, one of the results of that was that you know, folks who had been able to make a living on the land, maybe not. You know, the most affluent lifestyle, but were able to to make it, were no longer able to farm. And what they had to turn to were basically three options Uh, working in the new maquiladoras, assembly plants that were also a part of the NAFTA agreement, right? Part of that was opening it up so that. Um, American and and other multinational companies could come in and set up these assembly plants in northern Mexico and pay folks very, very, very low wages. That was one option for people who had formerly been in the agricultural sector or to come to the United States to try to make a living or to become involved in the drug trade. So I just think we, we can't think about that region without thinking deeply about the effects of NAFTA. Yeah.
0: So you lived at the border when you were in your early 20s. Is that right? Newly out of college? Yeah.
1: Um, So I actually had not yet gone to college. I I went to college later when I was about 27, but I was typical age. I mean, I I turned 21 just a month before I moved down there.
0: Hmm. Okay. Not unlike the characters in the novel. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I guess I wondered if you arrived at the border with a lot of the distortions and misunderstandings that many people who have never been there or they've been there to cross it and go on to some resort in Mexico. I mean, did you was this kind of a reckoning with a lot of the misunderstanding that you had when you got there to live?
1: Yes, I think so. And I think I wasn't even fully aware of all of the distorted messages and stories that I had received. I mean, I, in my mind, I was moving there because I was in love with a woman who was doing she's American doing a study abroad program um, in and living in Ciudad Juarez. And so, you know, in the forefront of my mind, that was my reason for moving there. And it also seemed like an interesting place to to live for a while. But it really wasn't I don't think until I arrived there that I realized just how many false stories I had ingested. I mean, I think we, we all ingest without even really realizing it.
0: What's frustrating about that, and and I can tell that you've you've thought this through quite a bit from the novel, is that facts don't seem to have much of an effect on the distortions. I mean, this kind of goes back to where we started, which is it's almost like we want to hold on to what we think we know Mm
1: -hmm. and the
0: facts that puncture that those myths and distortions are pretty inconvenient.
1: Yes, particularly when the the story in the u s the the narrative is so tied to America being the hero, basically that you right. know right. things are so much safer on the u s side and that um you know we are aiding Mexico in this kind of war on drugs when really so many of the things that are happening are are directly caused by U.S. policies. And it's not nearly as black and white as it seems like it from from this side. And I think that there's a lot of investment in the U.S. in this narrative of we're, you know, helping our, our southern neighbors and that it's that clean, right? That we're helping them with their problem as if it's not a problem mm-hmm. that we caused.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you've brought this up because I, I pulled out this Scene, and we'll we'll talk about the characters here in in more depth in a minute. But there's this scene where the lead character Elana is thinking about these cities, El Paso and Juarez, that sit right across the border from one another, and how Juarez is seen as so much more dangerous than El Paso, and she thinks it served as a great contrast. So much pain so close to home, only bolstered that feeling of being chosen, the promised land, the magic line. I mean, what I think you're saying there is, by comparison, you know, it it serves to lift up, to elevate this, again, this mythology that America is the chosen land, the promised land. Everybody wants to be here, and we are just receiving a lot of the problems that our neighbor to the south, you know, are sending us. Mm -hmm. Say more about that, if you would.
1: Yes, so exactly. I mean, I think I intended exactly what you just said. And I think it's part of this sort of larger historical idea of manifest destiny, I I would kind of tie it to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't talk about it as much these days in terms of religion at a certain point in history I think it was talked more explicitly about like this but I still think there's this aura of kind of well God chose you know we are we are living in the chosen land God chose us and that's why things are safer on one side of the river than the other right oh well you know this is somehow some kind of God-given grace that we that we have on this side not that there are very specific policies that are tied to you know, the IMF, to, to all of these large institutions that result in these very specific communities having one side of the river and the other having very, very different realities. We pretend as if somehow because there is less violence on, on our side that it, uh, yeah, that it makes us chosen in some way when you can actually look at very directly at these certain economic policies and see exactly why it is that there is more violence on one side than the other. There's really no mystery there, but we like to, to pretend like there somehow is. It makes us feel better, I think.
0: You know, when I think about this, this and, I, and I'm really interested in how enduring the mythology of exceptionalism, American mm-hmm. exceptionalism is, but when you think about, let's just use the example of drugs and guns. When you think about why so many drugs flow in from, the, from Mexico and beyond, and so many guns end up in the United States, from all different parts of the world, but also from Mexico. I mean, what's, what's, that's about demand. Yes. And what's odd about that is that demand somehow doesn't tarnish this idea that we are, as you said, God's chosen exceptional land. It's so hypocritical and confusing.
1: Exactly. I know. It's it's actually pretty astounding if you look at the numbers, because the US is the largest drug market for the cartels that are moving drugs in Mexico. We are the single biggest market. So there, There is... Well, historically, there was virtually no market in Mexico. I do think that there's there's a bit more, unfortunately, of a, of a market, a bit more of um, drug use there. But historically, in the 1970s and 1980s, there really w- was virtually no market whatsoever at all south of the border. Everything moved north because there was a growing market here, and the market here is is just going th- through the roof. So... You know, in the most basic terms, the reason that there are, that the cartels exist is because of the demand here in the United States. And if you talk about guns, I mean, the flow of guns from the United States South is another part of the issue that we just don't really talk about at all. Um, So we know that the cartels are very well armed. But something I didn't really know until I moved down to the area was there's only one legal gun store in Mexico. It is actually very, very difficult to get a gun in the in entire country. Yes. So,
0: really, there, there's yeah.
1: very strict regulations, um, and there's there's only a single gun store. The dealer is located on a military base in Mexico City. Prospective buyers have to show you know, proof of employment, pass lots of different background checks, and the process can take months. And often people are, are turned away. So, where folks are getting guns is from the United States. I mean, the numbers are are kind of astounding. Some, some statistics that I found was between 2014 and 2018, 56,000 guns entered Mexico from the United wow. States. Like basically, we are arming yeah. the cartels. And then we turn around and say, oh my gosh, what's all this violence about?
0: I, I want to say one more thing here about the drug culture. Um, I'm aware, because I've done some reading on this, that the drug, the Mexican drug cartels have a basically a manufacturer assembly line of opioids uh, laced with fentanyl coming up yes. into the United States. But this is another example of what we've been talking about. The opioid problem in Mexico pales in comparison to the way Americans are using and abusing opioids. And yet, when you hear When you hear interdiction law enforcement talk about this, it's all focused on where it's coming from and shutting down those cartels' ability to ship opioids laced with fentanyl into the United States. What I think is pretty clear is if they were able to shut down the path, the channel from the south, Americans would still demand it and get it somewhere else. And there'd be some other country around the world, China, whatever, that would supply it. It is not again. It's just this distortion of reality. It is not Mexico that is the problem when it comes to opioids and fentanyl. It's the United States demand.
1: Yes, precisely. And you can you can look at history for examples of exactly how this uh, went down. You know, most of the drug trade into the United States in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties came from Colombia. And uh, Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan with the, the South Florida task force really cracked down on the way that the Colombians were bringing and and other drugs in through Florida. And what happened immediately is the Colombians just redirected through Mexico. And the drug trade in Mexico then kind of took took over. So, uh, just to your point, the fact that the demand didn't go away when Ronald Reagan started the South Florida Task Force, it, it it didn't. The demand didn't change at all, and therefore, the flow of drugs didn't change either. It just altered the route.
0: All right, you're listening to a conversation with novelist Misha Marin. She's an assistant professor of creative writing at Duke University, and her new novel is called perpetual West. It unfolds on, mostly on the border of the United States and Mexico. And so we're talking about, Misha lived down there in her early 20s, and we're talking about some of the cultural perceptions, political perceptions, economic perceptions that have been distorted between the two countries and some of the the myths and misinformation that Americans hold about The Border. Uh, This is Big Books and Bold Idea. My Bold Idea is my Friday book show. Um, So, Misha, I I don't want to skip over this. I want to go on and talk a bit about the the kind of the heart of the novel. But there's a place in the novel where you observe that even acclaimed writers like D.H. Lawrence and Rebecca West traveled widely in Mexico, lived in Mexico, but they otherized the people that they encountered in their own travels. And we're still doing that. I was surprised to, to see that because I thought if you've lived there and you've done the kind of observation that writers like Lawrence and West would have done, that they wouldn't have fallen into that trap. What do you find surprising about that?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think I I also found it surprising when I encountered those texts, and I think that's why I I incorporated it into the novel, because I was having the same questions that you just presented. You know, how do these really talented writers who Mm spent time in the country, how do they feel, how or why did they feel so comfortable otherizing the place and the people that they were talking about and that they had spent time in. And I'm not sure that I have a full answer to that. But I think that one kind of ho- hopeful thing maybe is I do think that we are moving away from being okay with that kind of otherizing. I mean, I think some of it maybe is is a time period uh, thing that no one was asking them to... to to take apart these assumptions they had Um, no one was asking them to doubt the observations Mm -hmm. that they made and I actually think Mm -hmm. that for me in my process Mm -hmm. of writing this book doubt and fear have been very, very very useful for me I'm not sure why but I think that they weren't asked to kind of second guess themselves that that the observations they made were colored by the ways I'm assuming they were raised, the cultures they came from, and they weren't able to break down those ideas and really kind of see through those preconceived ideas. As we were talking about earlier, you know, when I arrived at the border, I had been fed all of these false narratives and it took me years to be able to write this novel. I knew almost immediately I wanted to write about that area and and some of the aspects of, of living there, but it took me years and I think that whatever success I may have had in portraying this area in a truthful way was due a lot to, to doubt the fact that I, I kind of doubted if I could do it, and then I persisted.
0: Let's uh, explain kind of the, the situation that these characters, this young couple, uh, they've come from West Virginia to come down to the border. Do you give us just a kind of a scene setter as to what they've encountered and then what happens. Can you do that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So so it, it begins with um, Alex and Alana. And um, Alex was born in, in Ciudad Juarez, but was adopted by a white American Pentecostal missionary couple who were down there. And they brought him back to West Virginia with them and raised him in West Virginia. And then he uh, went to college in Virginia and met Alana who is the daughter of one of his professors, and they married. And when the book opens, they're traveling out to El Paso. Um, Alex is going to be enrolling in a master's program in sociology, and Alana is going to be continuing her undergrad education um, in English. So they arrive at the border and the, the first chapter shows them arriving. And then we jump some months ahead in time. And Alex is. Focusing his thesis on lucha libre, Mexican professional wrestling, and he's been interviewing a man named Mateo, who is a professional wrestler, um, and developing a relationship with him.
0: They, I'd say, they both maybe Alex more than Alana, but they both arrive there with this this kind of romanticism and nostalgia that. Yeah. They try to hang on to, and only when it becomes just impossible to hang on to that kind of romanticism do they have to painfully let it go. Does, does, that, does that sound right to you? That's, that's how I read kind of what they're, what they're up against uh, as they live there.
1: Yes, I, I agree entirely. And uh, it makes me think of um, recently, I was talking to to someone who had um, read an early and galley version of the book. And she was talking about an aspect that I hadn't even realized as I was writing the book, but I think it makes so much sense when she was comparing this process that you talk about Alex and Alana kind of dismantling this kind of nostalgia that they have, and also the way that their relationship to each other begins to kind of fall apart comparing it to they drive out there in this car and the car mm. is kind of falling apart and the heater doesn't work and um it's it's got a lot of problems that they hang on to it mostly because it has a tape deck that they love um playing playing <laughs> these tapes right. in and and so this person i was talking to was comparing that and i thought you know i i didn't do that intentionally but i actually think that's a really good way of thinking about it them hanging on to the wreck of their car yeah
0: <laughs> it really is. Um, they don't know themselves very well. Not unexpected, I guess, for people who are in their early 20s. And, and they're a little adrift. I mean, I, I guess I wondered, what is Alex really there to do? Uh, you know, as you've noted, he's been adopted by an American couple. He was born in Mexico. But what is he really there to do?
1: I think he's really there to get to know the place that he was born in, and he, the you know the the kind of person that he is, he's he's very interested in academia and pushing himself in that kind of a way. So he didn't feel comfortable, say, just moving to Ciudad Juarez because that's where he was born, and he wants to get to know the place. He has to for himself kind of frame it within. His academic pursuits, so he decides uh-huh. he's going to move there and he's going to join, you know, he's going to enter into this program at, of Texas and El Paso. Um, and but as he begins to realize, I think as as the the narrative goes along, that's not really why he's there, right? It's not like that was the best program he he could have gotten into. It's not. I mean, it's 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 a good program, but that's not really why he was there. And it's nothing as direct as, you know, he kind of toys for a second in his mind with, oh, he's trying to find his birth mother. But it's nothing that concrete either. It's something much more ephemeral. And I think he knows that he can never know Chihuahua and, and uh Sierra Juarez the way he would have known it if he hadn't been moved away from there, if he'd grown up there. He can never know it like that, but he wants to try to come as close as he can.
0: So I thought this was an interesting choice uh, by you as you conceived of the novel because you could have developed a storyline with everything else that's going on, but that he's also in search of, you know, wanting to know his parents. That would have been compelling Mm -hmm. and interesting and perhaps, you know, a, a plot line where he comes up against his own identity and then, you know, blah, blah. So I, so, I'm interested in why you didn't make that choice
1: well, so much for me uh, as I work on longer pieces of fiction I'm really, really always invested in in the characters and in images, so I think that the way that I begin my process is almost always tied to. Images. So this began for me with Im- with an image of these two young people arriving at the border. And then I have to kind of broaden the lens and ask myself, okay, so who are these two people? Um, I think mm-hmm. I try to, to trust the characters as they present themselves to me. And so of course I'm making decisions, right? I'm the one writing the book, but I don't think about it in the way of like, okay, I'm going to decide that Alex will or will not, you know, seek out his his birth parents. It's more, I do a lot of uh, writing, what I call writing off the page where I, I'm just, I'm not even necessarily trying to write a narrative. I'm just trying to get to know the character. And I, I write longhand and I just see spend time with the character and then what comes out of that I I take pieces of it and incorporate it into the actual manuscript so Alex just didn't seem like he was going in that direction I mean maybe it's kind of funny to talk about because obviously I'm the one who wrote it so I I have you know control over it but in certain (laughs) ways if I'm really in the right place with my character I feel like they're the one who's controlling the narrative not me and I'll kind of you know, ask the character questions and see about pushing them in one direction or another. And his character wasn't going in that direction. So I didn't continue mm-hmm. to, to press that.
0: That makes sense. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my Friday book show. And I'm in conversation with Misha Marin about her new novel, Perpetual West okay, I know that you've been asked about this and you're going to be asked a lot about this. This this is really interesting because one of the most unexpected but enlightening plot lines is this story of the culture of pro wrestling in Mexico. And and, And this is what was, again, enlightening for me. On the surface, you know, the culture of pro wrestling in Mexico seems to resemble the American version with you know, the campy storylines and the choreographed clashes. But what what unfolds and what becomes clear is that pro wrestling is really something else in Mexico. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about lucha libre. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. And and what what it is and how it's seen in Mexico.
1: Yes. So um I would agree. There there are a lot of parallels. I mean, uh, Lucha Libre comes from uh, American professional wrestling, uh, was introduced into Mexico by a man named Salvador Luterof, uh, has that, that same lineage, that same root, but took off in different directions uh, in Mexico. And a couple of the ways, I mean, w- w- one way when you just go and, and you watch wrestling in Mexico that you might notice immediately is that there is a certain level of kind of acrobatic athleticism. Not that that doesn't exist in, in professional wrestling in the United States, but I think that it's It's more prized in uh, wrestling in Mexico. These kind of, like, leaps from the top of the ropes, triple flip into the ring. So that, that you know, will kind of catch your eye uh, right away. And another thing is um, the use of masks. And again, masks are used in professional wrestling in the United States, but they're used much more heavily uh, in Mexico. And much more kind of seriously like the identity of a masked wrestler is kept very very under wraps Uh, a wrestler's family and you know the promotion company that they work for uh, and their fellow wrestlers are really the only people who should know the identity of that wrestler
0: why why is that Did, did you come to understand why why there is such a covert identity piece of this
1: yeah, you know, so um, in my research, I read a book called The World of Lucha Libre, which is by anthropologist Heather Levi at Temple University. And, and she writes about this. And I don't think there's one direct exact uh, answer for this. I think that mass wrestling, you know, when it was introduced in the 1930s, when wrestling was introduced on uh, this type of wrestling uh, into into Mexico, masks were in use. Not all wrestlers used them, but they were a part of it. And they just, I think the audiences in Mexico kind of took to it more, um, mm. and really, there's this level of kind of, I guess you might say, sort of reciprocity with the audience. The audience does not sort of attempt like no one. It's it's not um, kosher to kind of try to find out who a wrestler is either. Like the audience <laughs> wants that secrecy it's a part of the story that's that's being told you know sometimes in in wrestling in the United States there's there's a very obvious division between who the wrestler is in the ring and who they are in quote yeah. unquote real oh, yeah. life yeah right yeah. and um, audiences in 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 Mexico uh, embraced kind of a an overall identity that the identity of the wrestler in the ring is their identity and that's all you know of them and that their their private identity at home is not something the audience is really interested in um it kind of i don't know in a certain way it just it keeps the story going there's no break in it the narrative of um the of the wrestler it continues uh, with them. So if they ever make any public appearance, right, they have that mask on. um, And certain famous wrestlers have even, uh, you know, supposedly been like buried uh, with their masks on, right? Um, So it's something (laughs) about keeping that storyline going um, inside and outside of the ring.
0: You know, it it made me wonder, and, and I think you're writing to this, you know, here, it seems that in the moment, everybody's in, you know, in on the kind of in on the fake and -hmm. enjoying that and seeing it for what it is there. It seems like there is a, a much deeper investment in the, the transformation, I guess is, is the word I'm, I'm thinking about, that you become someone else when you don the these costumes and these masks and that changes you somehow i don't i don't know that most of the pro wrestlers you know in the states would speak to that what do you think
1: yeah i i agree and i think you know i'm not sure that i can entirely speak to why that is but i can say that one of the results that i Found as I was doing my research that was pretty amazing is that for young wrestlers coming, you know, maybe from a sort of hard Scrabble background uh, in Mexico to don that mask and go into the ring and really take on this new identity, it, it, it can positively affect their lives, I think, in ways that, yeah. that are not yeah. the same in, in the United States. You can really kind of become a new person and really, um, yeah, go beyond the class background that you come from, your own particular last name, um, aspects like that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So you took some pro wrestling classes in North Carolina to get a, I guess, what, a, a visceral sense of what it's like to be in the ring? I did, yes. <laughs> I, mean, what, I mean, there was a moment what was it in, like?
1: Well... Turns out I am not good at wrestling at all. Um, but there was a moment in my writing where I really ran up against needing to know certain specific things, like what does it actually feel like in the ring? You know, what, what does it feel like under your feet? What do the ropes feel like in your hands? How bouncy is the ring? Sort of just these very practical things that um, I felt like I, I couldn't any longer rely on just asking questions of wrestlers. So... I was like, okay, well, I can't, you know, it's it it can't just like jump up in, you know, into the ring after after an event. Um, so I was like, what do I do? And I, I signed up for classes at the Firestar Pro Wrestling School in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was upfront with them as to why I was signing up for the classes, and they were very welcoming. And I learned very quickly that I'm I'm not good at all uh, at, at wrestling. Well, what,
0: what are you not good at? I mean, well, so what, what I kinds of skills even... would you say
1: <laughs> uh, falling? I'm not good at falling. So I didn't even <laughs> really make it past the first lesson, basically, which is to, to fall in a, they call it, here in the U.S., they call it bumping. So to fall in a backwards mm. in a very controlled way to where, so underneath the mat, there are these metal beams and then big pieces of wood. And they're set up in such a way that if you fall in a controlled way and you throw your weight in a certain way, it makes this very loud smack. But it's a lot louder than your fall actually is, right? So it sounds very painful, but if you're doing it in the right way, you're not actually harming yourself. And I could not master falling uh, without hurting myself. (laughs) So I would wake up the next day just covered in bruises and, like, the the teacher eventually said to me, you know, so you're doing this in order to write this book and you're going to give yourself a concussion and you're not going to be able to write your novel. So, yeah.
0: Oh my gosh, Misha! I mean, when you were trying to learn how to fall, were you bouncing off of the rings and that w- the ropes and that was scary? Was somebody pushing you? I mean was that part of the thing like i'm gonna get hurt
1: right so so it, 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 bouncing off the ropes is an even more advanced skill than where I got what i what, what I was practicing <laughs> was basically falling. From a seated, so he had me start in a seated position where you're just you just fall backwards with a lot of force, but having it land in the middle of your back so you're not hurting your neck Mm. and you're not hurting the base of your spine, and you're control. You know, you're using your abs to control how you fall so that you make an impact that makes the largest noise for the smallest impact, and it's actually very very difficult. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, it sounds like, I mean, had you, had you progressed, let's say you were good at this, right? Could you have seen, I don't know, letting it kind of spool out for a while? I mean, maybe you maybe you get a costume. Maybe, or was this just? Yeah, No, I I would have
1: (laughs) loved that. I mean, I think, you know, in my daydreams before the first day of class, I was like, you know, I, I never thought I would be great at it. But I thought, hey, maybe I'll try this out for a while. You know, <laughs> um, I loved um, taking theater classes when I was in high school. I've You know, I've loved different different kinds of performing. And I think it would have been really fun. And I think, you know, if I really had wanted to, to keep with it, the, the teacher would have been patient with me and would have helped me. But he wanted, he kindly reminded me that my primary goal was to write the novel, <laughs>
0: Okay. I have one other question for you about this before you read an excerpt. I've always wondered when the wrestlers are up on the rope, you know, they might be standing on the ropes and they're leaping off onto their opponent. Are they, is that also a very controlled land on your elbows or forearms? You are really never putting weight against the person that you're falling on, right? Did you see people do that? You yes. know how it works.
1: Yes. So it is. All, I mean, um, the the whole thing about about professional wrestling is an immense amount of control. It's all very yeah. very controlled. So it's it's um, athleticism tied to theater. So it's. I mean, what I was just describing about kind of the learning to fall where you're wanting to have the maximum sound for the minimum impact. I mean, I think you could say that's broadly true of, of all of wrestling. So when someone jumps from a rope onto their partner, that's, that's been choreographed and practiced. So that it causes the least amount of pain to the partner while giving the audience the most amount of kind of pleasure right like showing them this this kind of grand move but without actually i mean people get injured in wrestling all the time right but the the goal is not to just sort of brutalize your uh, opponent <laughs> but rather to if you kind of think of it as like a dance it's it's like it's totally like a dance where you, it's a give and a take um and if i if i lean my weight in this way then then you know kind of to to move back in this other way it's um very choreographed in that way, and, and I think that that's amazing and beautiful. I mean, I think that thinking about it as quote unquote "fake is really just the wrong way to go about thinking about it, because yeah, yeah, it's theater, point. right yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. yeah. I said fake earlier, and I, I think you're absolutely right.:
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's natural it's to kind of ask that, but yeah. at the same time, it's sort of like, um, we don't go to, we don't go to a play and say, "Wait a minute, is this fake?" <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, exactly right. Exactly. Um, Would you read a couple of paragraphs? This is a part of the novel where Alex has decided in his academic pursuits, he's going to change his thesis and and he's going to write about the culture of Mexican pro wrestling. And he's kind of working through, I guess, some of the things that we've been talking about
1: yeah absolutely so i'll I'll read here um he he's just met with his thesis advisor dr nelson and then um and then and then gone back to his apartment so the sun set at five p m and the cold crept in as Alex waited for the downtown bus, feeling the tug of Juarez and the empty space where guilt should have been. Alana had called while he was napping. After his meeting with Dr. Nelson, and now her voice was trapped inside his cell phone and he could replay it, poke and prod himself with it as often as he wanted. Hey, Allie, I made it, and I remembered to call you. Bet you thought I wouldn't. Okay, love you. Dad should be here in a few minutes to pick me up. She expected him to call her back and ask how the flight was and tell her about his meeting with Dr. Nelson, if she even remembered his meeting. He left his phone in the apartment and headed to the bus stop instead. Even if she did remember to ask, she wouldn't really be listening. She was never really listening to him these days. And he didn't see the point in talking about it. The meeting had gone fine, as fine as a complete changing of the thesis at the last minute meeting could go. Dr. Nelson had asked the questions that Anglos always asked about lucha libre. Is it just like American wrestling? Which of course it wasn't exactly, but the roots of it did come from the US brought down by Salvador Luderoth, who had experienced his first wrestling matches right here in El Paso in the nineteen thirties. Right, but is it really like American wrestling? Everyone asked. No one wanted a history lesson. What they wanted to know was if it was totally fake. <laughs> Which was missing the point entirely. The pre-fight knowledge of who would win an individual match didn't matter to the wrestler. What mattered was the long arc of his storyline. Who rose and who fell across the stretch of many months. They were athletes, absolutely. But what they were participating in was theater.
0: Misha Marin reading an excerpt from her new novel, Perpetual West, and kind of right at the heart of what we've been talking about, this culture of professional wrestling in Mexico and kind of how it differs and how it compares to pro wrestling in the United States. Um, you know, early in, in the conversation we were talking about the distorted representations of the border, our Southern border and the use that is made of that in political culture. You know, I noted that, and and I don't know if you're still doing this, but for a time you were teaching writing in prison and you know i'd imagine that you in that experience you see the effects of similar kind of distortions and otherizing that happens about the people who end up incarcerated are, are you still doing that work
1: well, so unfortunately, COVID has really uh, thrown a wrench oh. in, in that program. So I was teaching um, for some years through a program funded by the National Endowment of the Arts that sent me and other uh, writers and artists into federal prisons. And so I did some work in um, a minimum security prison in Alderson, West Virginia, and a medium security prison in Beckley, West Virginia. And um since COVID has changed a lot of the ways in which folks in prison can uh, receive visitors and and, mm-hmm. and has really kind of messed up programming like these creative writing classes. So I am not currently doing that, although I am interested in working on ways to try to figure out how uh, how I might be able to continue that work, even if I can't actually go into the prison. But yeah, I would agree with you entirely that there are... we. Have so many i guess you could say myths that we mistake for for reality um about folks who end up uh in prison and you know interestingly I think too it's it's a lot of it is tied up uh, also with drug use um uh, you know we were talking right. about how the drug market in the united states is is the the biggest uh the biggest drug market for for the folks who are bringing drugs up um from mexico and and that continues to to play out. In the United States, I'd say that, you know, so many of the people in there in some way, shape or form ended up there because of drug use. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I think we we have this kind of idea of, well, you know, they did something wrong. They should be. Punished a very like unnuanced way of of thinking about it, and you know I even had people, even you know people who were working at the prison who would say, "Wait a minute, you know these people are getting free creative writing classes. I haven't even broken any laws, and I can't get free creative writing <laughs> classes." Um, and you know the the statistics show that education is one of the biggest deterrents for. Recidivism, right. so I just think we have, yeah, we have a very, in general, in the United States, we have a very wrong-headed way of thinking about incarceration.
0: I, I'm interested in just as as we talked about your experience moving to the border when you were in your early 20s, and the the distortions that you carried, and the romanticizing that you carried mm-hmm. into that, and that you've you've written into this novel. What you thought, you know, this close contact with, and I don't know if you were teaching men and women, only men? What? Um, Yes, so the minimum security was women,
1: and then the medium security was men. So the first few times I actually started teaching in a state prison in Iowa before I began with the NEA uh, position. So that was all men. So the first few years of teaching in prison was, uh, yeah, was male
0: inmates. So... So did you also catch yourself carrying, you know, distortions and just misinformation into this, into this contact and into this place?
1: Yes, definitely. And I think it was actually, I mean, you're making that comparison to to when I moved down to the border. And I think that's a great comparison, because again, I think I didn't even quite realize all of the misconceptions that I was carrying with me until I uh, entered into that space and I think that you know I I had concerns like oh you know being a a woman entering into that space and um, Mm -hmm. I uh, concerns that honestly in my experience were not an issue whatsoever at all the students that I had in all of the prisons that I've taught in have been the most respectful students that I've had anywhere um and the most even in
0: college even
1: (laughs) Even in college college yes yes I mean my my students at Duke are wonderful and they're not I'm not I'm not saying that they're they're disrespectful to me but I quickly came to realize that 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 this opportunity to take a creative writing class was something that no one took lightly they were Mm -hmm. this was this huge opportunity for them I mean in many different ways one student said to me you know uh, you know Professor Marin one of the things that I really love about this class is just that you give us time to be quiet so I would give them time in class to write because so one of the like misconceptions I had I think from movies and television or something like that was that like you know say if you're incarcerated that you would have a lot of time on your hands and that maybe you'd just be in a cell and you'd, you'd have a lot of time mm-hmm. to read or write and in At least the institutions where I was teaching these classes, uh, that was not the truth. Most folks didn't have a cell. Mostly they were housed in units with these sort of walls that reached about halfway up. And they were housed in bunk beds. They didn't have very much private space. And they had almost no time to themselves. They are put to work in various ways and paid, you know, like a nickel an hour. They're not given much downtime, quote unquote. Um, And that was definitely a misconception that I had. So I quickly realized, oh, wait a minute, I need to give these guys time to write in class because they actually don't have a lot of time to work on their writing outside of class. So I would give them, you know, somewhere between um, half an hour and 45 minutes to write. And one of the students said to me that that time where everyone was just silent, we were in a closed classroom and everyone was being quiet, was some of the few moments of just kind of peaceful stillness and quiet that they got uh, Mm
0: -hmm. in their week. Mm -hmm.
1: And that had never occurred to me, you know, before. Um, So yes, it was a a big learning curve for me, but it was a really wonderful experience. I mean, for me as a teacher, it was just really, really rewarding.
0: You know, I, I was interested in whether what the men and women who were incarcerated wanted to write about and what your students at Duke want to write about if there's not as much distance between the ideas as we might expect.
1: Yeah, I I would agree. So I think that uh, in both cases, um, a lot of folks are interested in kind of unraveling their own narrative. So especially in the medium security prison that I was teaching in, a lot of my students were part of a drug rehabilitation program where um, they could have a slightly reduced sentence if they went through this program. And part of the program was working on their own autobiography and examining mm-hmm. what had led them to the the place where they were in their life. And uh, I encouraged them to to work on that in my class. And That led to, you know, a lot of people writing, I guess, what you might call, you know, memoir or or personal essays. Um, And uh, I find, you know, even at Duke too, even though I'm not, I, I mean, I teach a general creative writing class where we definitely do a section on nonfiction, but otherwise I teach fiction classes. But I tell my students that, you know, the line between fiction and nonfiction, I don't believe in making this hard line that you can make wonderful quote unquote fiction out of your own narrative or experiences that you've had. And I think that it is for young college age folks, it's also very useful for them to kind of use their own autobiography, whether that's in service of a fiction project or, uh, or more of an essay.
0: Misha, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for the conversation.
1: Thank you. This has been really, really wonderful. It's been so much fun.
0: Misha Marin is an assistant professor of creative writing at Duke University, and her new novel is titled Perpetual West.